What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? What's stopping you? I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. What's stopping you? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome to the Labor Day edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. This is the program uh, for non-Catholics. Those of you who are um, non-Catholic, uh, maybe you were a Catholic, an active Catholic years ago, fell away for whatever reason, or maybe you've never been a Catholic, uh, but you've still got some questions about the uh, Catholic faith. We are here to answer those questions. Now, because it is Labor Day, we're not going to be taking any uh, phone calls today. So instead, we're going to be doing something a little bit different, and that is airing a whole bunch of of calls that we've received on our uh, uh, listener comment line that have come in uh, during the overnight hours or during the weekends. So we're going to get to a whole bunch of those uh, in the coming hour. We'll also uh, sprinkle in a couple of emails as well. I'm Tom Price along with uh, Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Very well. How are you? I'm doing decent. Thank you. Happy Labor Day to you. Thank you so much. You we, too. Uh, we, we certainly owe an awful lot to, uh, you know, the the Lord had a lot to say about labor, right? Uh, yes, and so did St. Benedict, you know, ora et labora. Yes. Prayer and work. Prayer, prayer, and work. E- prayer is work, I guess. Uh, no, work. prayer and work. Prayer, prayer and, and work. work. Prayer and work. Very good. So we're going to lead off right now with one of those calls that we received during the overnight hours on the EWTN listener comment line. Hi, my name is Rob, and I have a lot of religious training. I was in seminary for a long time, and then I got out. But the problem is that some friends of mine want to get married. One is not Catholic and the other is, but they don't want to go through the church. And they've asked me to marry them. And I have a hard time trying to explain that I don't have the capacity or the authority to marry them. But he says that just words would be enough for him. I was wondering if you could follow up on that question. Yeah, thanks, Rob. I really appreciate the question. So you're correct that you don't have the authority to do this, and they don't have the authority to do this. If one of the members of that party is Catholic, they're bound by canon law to marry in front of a minister of the church, either a priest or a deacon, unless they've been granted a dispensation by their bishop. So, you know, you can tell them, look, I'm a Catholic. I'm going to respect the law of the church. I don't have jurisdiction to do this. I'll be happy. You know, I'll pray for you, and I'll pray with you, and I'll support you any way I can, but I can't do this because I know this is against the mind of the Church, and and I don't have that jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. Very good, and uh, thanks so much for your call. Let's do one other one right now from our EWTN listener comment line. So my question is, is my wife is Catholic. I I don't want to say devout. She went through Catholic school. She's Catholic. I'm really more what one would call agnostic, I guess. But I want to support my wife, and I wonder if, uh, even though our views might be slightly different, I'm just curious in the Catholic tradition or religion uh, if that's acceptable. And uh, I don't know that the male is necessarily the leader, but I'm in a situation that I love my wife and I want to support her. Our spiritual journeys are, in fact, together, but we have separate paths to do that. Yeah, I really profoundly appreciate the question. And if, as far as your uh, concern, can you support your wife in her Catholic faith and practice if you yourself are an agnostic? The answer to that question is a resounding yes, completely. And I I think the attitude you've taken is an admirable one. 
that you don't want to put her down or discourage her in any mm-hmm. way. You, you mm-hmm. want her to find fulfillment as a Catholic, doing Catholic things and thinking Catholic thoughts. And I think that's beautiful, and I commend you for it. And, and hey, you know, I don't know. Maybe that's a sign of God's grace in your life. Could be. Uh, now, I do want to say something about the agnosticism specifically. Um, it's not as far from the Catholic faith as you might think. Uh, in Catholic theology... When we talk about the nature of God, the mystery of the Godhead, the Catholic position is that we are agnostic about God's nature. That's really the Catholic position. There's a fancy word for that. It's called apophaticism. Apophaticism means that we really can't affirm a lot of things about God's nature. We can can disconfirm a lot of things about God. There, There are many things that God is not, and there are many things that God is not like. And apophatic means negative. This is the negative way. It's what we know about God by way of negation. You know, God is not my coffee cup. He's not my house plant. He's not my cat. Um, you know, God is not the, the, the moon. He's not the planet Saturn. Um, you know, God is not a human being. Uh, God doesn't have physical properties. A lot of things that God isn't. Uh, but in terms of the actual nature of God's essence, we don't know. We don't know. What we know about God, we know from his effects, right? We know that there's a first cause. Uh, that there's a first principle that from which things proceed, uh, but beyond that we know very little, and so there's a kind of agnosticism built into the depths of Catholic spirituality, and so you know someone who approaches the mystery of reality with a sense of ignorance and I don't know um, is actually in some respects well suited to grow in wisdom and prudence and even grace and holiness. You're much better off, say, than the, the dogmatic atheist that can tell you all about uh, the nature of reality mm-hmm. and is v- emphatically certain about it. Um, uh, that position is really indefensible and it is a kind of uh, epistemological arrogance. The agnostic, I think, is in a better better shape and in some respects has some uh, commonalities with Catholics. Now, we do think there are things we can know about God from divine revelation, Jesus Christ, and the founding of the Church and things like that. But, um, you know, uh, the Church is happy to meet people where they are, and uh, and if you're an agnostic, I mean, I as a Catholic am going to say, hey, let's find out what we can groove on as agnostics. How much do we overlap Catholics and agnostics? And we do in some respects, and I'm going to go with that. Sounds good. One quick one here as we're going to break from Colleen. Was the Virgin Mary immaculately conceived even though she had two parents? Or are there two immaculate conceptions? When the Virgin Mary said, I am the immaculate conception, did she mean she conceived immaculately or that she was conceived immaculately? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So a lot of misconceptions about the immaculate conception. uh, And they proceed also, I think, analogously from a misconception about the nature of original sin. Um, so some people have the idea that original sin is like a genetic defect or a disease or a contagion that gets passed from parent to child, um, you know, something that you inherit. And we use, sometimes use that language, and so it's kind of deceptive. What we really mean by original sin is that Adam and Eve were created in the state of grace. Grace mm-hmm. is something that doesn't belong to us by nature. It's a gift of God. Uh-huh. And Adam and Eve lost that gift of grace, and so their progeny, we come into the world without that gift of grace. So it's not something positively inhering in the soul like a corruption or a genetic defect. It's the absence of something, namely the grace of God. Now, I'm going to have to wait till the break to flip it around and explain what that means for the Immaculate Conception. Very good. Uh, So stick tight there. We'll uh, continue on that on the other side of the break. We're doing a special uh, mailbag and recorded, uh, you know, listener comment line calls on call to communion today. Do stay with us.
Happy Labor Day to you from all of us here at EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Not taking your calls today. We're uh, listening to some calls that have come in during the overnight hours on our EWTN listener comment line. And we're also tackling a few emails along the way. And before the break, we were starting to unpack this. This one was from Colleen. I'll go ahead and repeat it in its entirety. Was the Virgin Mary immaculately conceived even though she had two parents? Or are there two Immaculate Conceptions? When the Virgin Mary said, I am the Immaculate Conception, did she mean she conceived immaculately or or that she was conceived immaculately? Yeah, thanks. So I started before the break to go back to the core understanding of the nature of original sin, because you can't really get the Immaculate Conception unless you get original sin. And original sin is not like a congenital defect or a disease or an infection that sort of sticks to your soul and is passed from parent to child, as if it were something positive and herring in you, you know, the way like paint sticks to the wall. Um, that's the Protestant conception. It's not the Catholic view. The Catholic view is original sin refers to something that is lacking, an absence of a thing, not, not a positive presence of a thing. And what's lacking here is an intrinsic relationship to God by way of grace. See, Adam and Eve were given grace, um, that's something that belonged to them by nature. It was a gift of God's self to them. And uh, they lost that. They lost that fellowship with God, and their progeny come into the world without that. But otherwise, their biology is more or less intact, as it were. Um, and so when we talk about being preserved from original sin, what we mean is uh, someone who has been cleansed of original sin has been given that gift of grace, as something positively given by God. Um, when we talk about conceived immaculately or conceived without original sin, mm-hmm. then we mean that Mary has this super added gift of God's presence and grace in her soul from the very moment of her conception. But the very nature of the gift is something that that St. Anne and Joachim could not pass to her by generation. Okay. So her parents can't give her the presence of God as her sort of intrinsic birthright and inheritance through their biology, something that has to come directly from God himself. So you don't have to have say, an infinite regress of immaculate conceptions in order to get to the, to the Virgin Mary, right? It refers specifically to when Mary was conceived in the womb, God granted her a super-added gift of grace, this presence of, of God in her soul from the moment of her creation, such that she was preserved from, from original and actual sin and given all the graces and virtues and, and gifts of the Spirit to the highest degree so that she lived a life of unsurpassed holiness. Colleen, thanks so much uh, for your email. It's called a communion here on EWTN on this uh, Labor Day program. Here's another call from our uh, listener comment line. Question, what do I tell someone who will not return to being a Catholic because of, he says, two words, the Inquisition. Please tell me what I can say to him that might help. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So, you know, it's interesting that somebody says, I'm not going to be Catholic because of the Inquisition, because there's no Inquisition. <laughs> like, I mean, I, you know, I, I became Catholic back in 2003, and, you know, there's no Inquisition. I mean, I haven't been raked over the coals or put on the rack or, you know, and I say all kinds of crazy things, and I don't get in that much trouble, you know. <laughs> Every once in a while, I might have a conversation with Colin Donovan if I move off the rails a little bit here at EWTN, <laughs> but by and large, you know, it's a, there's no Inquisition going on. Um, so that's that's clearly not the impediment. But I think what he means is any church that's capable of this, right, can't be trusted, can't be trusted to be a divine authority, can't be trusted to be a repository of grace. And I definitely understand the objection, and in fact, uh, though I'm not worried about the Inquisition, 
uh, I am definitely worried about Catholics behaving badly, right? If not in this way, in some other way, mm-hmm. whether it be clerical sex abuse or, or just normal everyday Catholics just being mean, you know, just not exhibiting the Spirit of Christ to one another. And I guess if my expectation of the Church is that the Church shouldn't contain sinners that do atrocious things, and if the Church contains sinners doing atrocious things, then it can't possibly be of God. Well, I mean, if they hold that position, then I can understand why you would reject the Catholic faith. But that's not what the Church says about itself. The Church says about itself that it is designed to contain sinners capable of doing atrocious things. Um, I like to compare the Catholic Church to the buffet line at a at a diner. Okay. Right? You check into the diner, you, you pay your money, and you go down the line and you take a little of whatever you want. And you can certainly nourish yourself on fruits and vegetables and, you know, healthy food if you want to. Um, or you could go over there and just, just get those little saltine crackers that come in, you know, two per <laughs> p- plastic package. Yes. And then like my kids used to do, and I confessed to doing too when I was a kid, go around and collect all those little Coffee Mate, you know, fake creamer things. And I used to go to restaurants with my parents and just, just chug one of those one after another. I'd, I'd go wow. get a whole bowl full of them and just go, 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 go. Really? Yeah, yeah, I just loved the taste of them when I was like <laughs> five years old. You know? So you could live on coffee mate and saltine crackers, not going to be very healthy. Or you could just like pitch a fit and cross your arms and say, I'm not going to eat anything. I'm going to sit here and be cynical and bitter and this isn't real food. You know, um, you could do any of those things. And you got in the door, but it's up to you to take advantage of what's there. Sure. And that's really kind of what the Catholic faith is about, right? That... Faith and baptism get you in the door. Mm-hmm. What you do with the riches of the church is kind of up to you to cooperate with the grace of God that's on offer. And this is a buffet of options to grow in grace and holiness, but they all require your cooperation. And so you can you can feast on the riches of grace and knowledge in the church and grow and become like the saints. And the fact that there are saints is testimony that the thing works. I mean, applied generously and with, and with sincerity, you can grow in holiness as a Catholic. Uh, or you can eat the crackers and drink the coffee, mate, and, and just, you know, get sick and die. I mean, you can do that as a Catholic. It's kind of up to you. And Jesus anticipated this. When he talked about the church, he said there are wheat and tares. And we will not differentiate the two till the last day in the mm, final judgment when yeah. God will separate the wheat from the tares and judge all men according to their deeds. So it's a matter of expectations. What, what, is, what kind of thing is the Catholic Church? What kind of thing is the Catholic Church? It's not... Um, so a guarantee of holiness. That's not. It's. I mean, to judge it on that standard is to judge it on something alien to its own intent and nature and purpose. A lot of misconceptions about the Inquisition, wouldn't you say? Um, yeah. I mean, there are a lot of misconceptions about the Inquisition. I mean, there were, there was more than one Inquisition. There was a Spanish Inquisition. There was a Roman Inquisition. Um, the Spanish Inquisition was really uh, a a dimension, a, an agent of the crown of. Uh, the Spanish monarchy, and they had, uh, you know, imperialistic and colonialist aspirations to expand uh, state power, and the uh-huh. church was a vehicle for that. Um, and that's reprehensible, and the worst abuses came out of that situation. The Roman Inquisition was different. It was actually instituted to prevent mistreatment of people accused of heresy and mm-hmm. other crimes, yeah. and uh, to bring things like civil procedure and rules of evidence and the presumption of innocence, that kind of thing. Were br- that's why the Inquisition existed, was to prevent pogroms and, and lynchings and things of that sort. And in fact, the, the Roman Inquisition was so renowned for its fairness that criminals in the day would often deliberately commit heresy 
because they wanted to have their trial transferred from civil to ecclesiastical jurisdiction because they expected fairer treatment from the church. Wow. And I would add also that the kind of bad behavior that was exhibited in the Spanish Inquisition, which is reprehensible, and like you're not going to get any defense of the church or the, or the Spanish monarchy from me. I mean, it's terrible stuff. Yeah. Um, is nevertheless kind of par for the course with absolutist political regimes, right? I mean, I- anytime you get a regime... That, that claims some kind of divine or ideological mandate mm-hmm. um, to refashion the world in its own image um, and, and that the means justifies, excuse me, the end justifies the means, you, you get these kinds of abuses. And it comes in, you know, whether you're a fascist on the right or you're a communist on the left. And, and uh, you know, to be honest with you, when I look around the world today, I see factions divided ideologically into groups of people that are sure that they speak uh, if not with the mind of God, at least with a kind of quasi-divine authority um, or some sort of super-mundane knowledge, and they think that they have the formula um, to change the human person, sometimes physically, uh, and that the those that disagree with them should be treated rather like the way the Spanish Inquisition treated people, right? Ugh. And, I mean, you, I, I look on the news and I see, you know, this person gets up as an activist and some rabid crowd... Uh, wants to literally tear them limb for limb and, you know, spitting on them, throwing feces at them and this kind yeah. of nasty behavior. And no trouble imagining, well, that crowd ever gets in power, you better watch out. You know, this is what the kind of behavior you're going to witness. So that's that's sort of the common lot of the human race. It's reprehensible. But, I mean, this is these are the things that Christ came to change, right, not to, not to institute. Call to communion here on EWTN. Thanks so much for your call. We're going to go to another call right now that came in overnight on the listener comment line. Hi, my name is John, and uh, I wish to ask Dr. Anders a question about the writings in the Catholic Church where they use the imprimatur and the nihil obstat. Uh, why is that necessary, and is it necessary for all Catholic writings or other writings that are catechetical or whatever for the Church? Okay. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. Um, no, it's not necessary, and a Catholic can write anything he or she wants and publish it any way he wants, with or without uh, an imp- imprimatur and a nickel obstat, um, and, uh, and many people do, right? Uh, so, yeah, no, you don't have to do that. Um, uh, why might someone want to seek it? Well, I know, like EWTN Publishing, for example, yes. uh, is very conscientious that everything that comes out from EWTN accords with the teaching of the Church, that that doesn't violate any ecclesiastical norm or any theological standard mm-hmm. of the Catechism. And, uh, and, you know, everybody would like to say, hey, I'm Orthodox, Look at me, look at my orthodoxy, I'm like the king of orthodoxy. But, you know, we, we understand injustice, we can't really be judges in our own case. And so we submit that to the proper jurisdiction, which is ecclesiastical authorities. Mm-hmm. And typically the bishop's office uh, will uh, review a manuscript and say, yeah, this doesn't, this doesn't contradict anything in Catholic teaching. And it's just a way of saying that this has been vetted by an appropriate authority. So someone reading it should have assurances that, they're, that what they're reading is safe. doesn't make it true. That's an important qualification. Mm. The fact that someone receives a, a nickel obstat or an imprimatur does not mean that the content of the book itself is endorsed by the Church, right? doesn't mean that this, you know, if a therapist gives advice, that that, that, that advice is somehow ecclesiastically sanctioned. That's not mm. what it means. It just means that the content of the book does not explicitly violate some norm of Catholic faith or practice. Okay. But, uh, but no comment upon the expertise involved or the prudence involved, nothing like that. 
Very good. Thanks so much for your call. Here's an email we received from Ross. Dr. Anders, I'm a dedicated listener to Savior Radio in Owensboro, Kentucky. I'm still not fitting the pieces of the Christian story together very well. Seems to me that God created Earth as a paradisal home for mankind, but due to the fall, mankind was banished and has since had to struggle its way through the fallen world that we all inhibit or inhabit to this day. Through the message of Jesus, God provides us his guidance such that we may come as close as possible to the idyllic existence of pre-fallen man, ultimately striving to be with God. But my understanding starts to falter as the need for Jesus' life to have played out as it actually did. I suppose Jesus' profound story of suffering was necessary to provide the heroic force to impel his message through history to now and for possibly many more millennia until the second coming. So is this anywhere close to accurate or is there more to understanding why Jesus had to live as he did? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So implicit in your question is the idea that you're searching for the logical key to unlike the necessity of the incarnation and the and the life of the historical Jesus is death and resurrection. And that the premise of your question, that 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 unexpressed implicit idea of what is the necessity of this, is misguided. Because the church actually says that it's not necessary in the strict logical sense. In other words, God didn't have to redeem the world. He didn't have to redeem the world. And he didn't have to redeem the world this way. He could have redeemed the world in some other way. And so you're never going to find that a priori principle that, that, uh, that unlocks the necessity of the incarnation, because mm. there isn't one. Instead, we approach the data of Revelation not through the lens of necessity, but through the lens of fittingness. Was it fitting that the Son of God should save us in this way? In the same way that, like, you know, I don't have to get my wife a birthday present. <laughs> and it doesn't have to be this one. But boy, it had better be fitting. <laughs> you know, um, that's kind of how I have to look at it. Okay. So was it fitting that the Son of God saved us in this fashion and at this time? Yeah, it was fitting. And let me give you some of the reasons that the church theologians have given over the centuries. Um, one of my favorites uh, St. Irenaeus of Lyon wrote about the Son of God and his incarnation, that it was necessary for the, for the world to be habituated to the divine logos before his incarnation. Of course, the divine logos is both the principle of reason that indwells every man, and also the second person of the Trinity who becomes incarnate in Christ. And when you look at the course of human history, it's fairly evident that that there is a massive shift from, say, uh, the Stone Age to the Iron Age, you know, the Cradle of Civilization, the Bronze Age, uh, to the birth of the Axial Age religions. Um, uh, there's a there's a shift in religious consciousness, you know, from polytheism and animism towards more monotheism, towards a concern for the ethical life. You look earlier in the Bronze Age, and you see the big concern is, you know, how can I get something out of the gods to to grow my crops and conquer my enemies. That, that seems to be the kind of concern. You ever read uh, Homer's Iliad, for example? And I mean, there's no concern for like, hey, let's, let's, we wonder how, the, those Trojan are, Trojans are real human beings. We need to treat them with dignity and follow <laughs> the principles of human rights. No, it's like, no. how can we go get what's theirs, yeah. you know? And, uh, and that begins to shift, you know, and there's this, this greater consciousness. And you see 
whether you know all the world religions, whether it's Buddhism or Hinduism or or Taoism or Confucianism or or Second Temple Judaism or Roman Stoicism, a concern for things like human dignity and and the moral life as really the path of uh, of liberation and enlightenment, Plato's philosophy, Aristotle's philosophy, and and Jesus Christ shows up on the scene exactly at the right moment to unite this aspiration of the human spirit with the God of Israel. And I can say more about that on the other side of the break. Very good. Uh, Sit tight there, Ross. We'll continue with your email in a moment. We're taking uh, some emails, but a whole lot of listener comment line calls that have come in during the overnight hours here on our special Labor Day edition of Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews. Do stay with us. called a communion on this Labor Day. Glad that you're with us. Tom Price here along with Dr. David Anders and Charles Beery, our producer. And uh, we are taking a whole bunch of uh, questions here from our listener comment line and also from emails. You want to continue the one that you began? Uh, yeah, before? so it was about the necessity, in quotes, of the Incarnation. Yes. And, and my point before the break was that we really can't talk in terms of necessity, but fittingness. And and we, we can find some reasons why it was fitting that Christ came when he did and how he did. One of them has to do with the question of timing. And uh, the Church Fathers thought that the, the culture and civilization had to develop to a certain point to accommodate the teaching of Christ, that it, it wouldn't have been appropriate for him to come earlier in human history. Uh, you had to have a sort of development of human consciousness to where th- questions about the ethical life and the decent treatment of people were paramount in, in people's consciousness, people's right. minds. And that yeah. clearly wasn't the case in quite the same way if you look, say, like the early Bronze Age. And so that was a development. Uh, you know, politically, uh, the Roman Empire and, uh, and Hellenism made the spread of the gospel uh, possible. Um, uh, Greek philosophy made the birth of Christian theology possible. All these things wouldn't have been able to take place at early periods of history. Um, and, and so there was a fittingness to the time. Uh, in terms of the... Uh, the location and the and the, the ethnicity and things like that. I mean, God had prepared Israel to be the cradle of the people of God and ultimately for the Messiah. And it would seem for a reason that the book of Isaiah speaks about um, the suffering servant. Uh, here, we can think of Israel as the suffering servant, as, uh, as having no beauty or majesty uh, that people should be attracted to it. And that's clear. If you look at Israel compared to, say, Greece or Rome or Macedonia, I mean, what did they have? They didn't have great architecture, by and large. They didn't have, uh, you know, great philosophy. They didn't have musical literature. Um, they had, well, they had the Holy Scripture. They did have that. Um, and they had this, uh, you know, kind of little backwater society with a belief in their own God that everybody else took no account of. And Isaiah recognizes that about the people of God. And yet it's from just these kinds of quarters uh, that God is going to completely upturn, overend, say, the Bronze Age expectations of the divine Pharaoh character. The person at the top of the hierarchy must be the closest to God. And God says, no, actually, the one closest to me is the one at the bottom of the hierarchy. And Israel exemplifies that in her own national history. And Christ teaches that when he says, don't seek the highest place at the table, seek the lowest place, and you can move up. And he himself exemplifies it in his mode of life, his birth in a stable yeah. uh, in Bethlehem, his growing up ignominiously in Galilee. The Jews of his own day said, ha, can any good come out of Nazareth? What kind of place is that? You know, that's like Sylacauga, Alabama. You know, <laughs> I can say that because I'm from the Deep South. Oh, you know? Okay. Um, 
And uh, nothing against Sylacauga, you understand. Yes. Um, and uh, uh, how can something great come out of there? And 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 that that shifts that that aspect of Christ's nature and character. How can this? How can the Savior of mankind, as a conquering hero, win by dying the death of a slave? And all these things overturn uh, traditional expectations. And uh, and yet they do. They do. They profoundly change human consciousness. And so today we take it for granted that the least among us has dignity. Mm-hmm. This is a Christian innovation. Like, this was not part of the world before. Aristotle, great a philosopher as he was, thought that if you had a, a mean, poor, despicable life, it was because you were mean, poor, and despicable. Right? That there was a natural hierarchy built into your circumstances that was appropriate in virtue of existing. And everyone thought that way. And the Christian revelation that came through Jesus was completely the opposite and actually changed thinking. And so, you know, today we take for granted the UN Declaration of Human Rights, that everybody has a kind of inherent dignity that should be respected. Unthinkable to the Bronze Age world. Yeah. But because Christ came in the time and the place that he came, in the manner that he came, and lived the life that he lived, um, the dignity of the human person and the, and, the, and the transcendent destiny of every man, woman, and child is now commonly acknowledged even by those that reject the Christian faith. Ross, thank you so much for your very thoughtful email. Call to communion on this Labor Day program. It's uh, another call that we have here that came in overnight on our listener comment line. Hello, this is Dennis from British Columbia. And I'm just curious or wondering, is there such a thing as diluting my intentions? For example, if I'm concentrating when I'm praying the rosary, and too many intentions come to mind. Does that does that water down my prayer? And yeah. the flip side of that is one intention for the entire rosary, does that carry more weight? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So um, prayer is not magic, and uh, you shouldn't be looking for the kind of perfect mental formula that will guarantee the efficacy of your prayer. Right, as, as if prayer were a kind of technique to be mastered. Oh, as soon as I can manage the technique of concentrating on but one thing, then I'll then I'll sharpen and hone that like the you know the edge of a nail that I can drive through the mind of God and get what I want. It doesn't work that way. Um, so, um, prayer works in at least two ways. Um, one is that prayer is a dialogue with God in relationship with Him, mm-hmm. and you know, in my relationship with my friends or family, I'm sure you're the same, my my entreaties to them are not more or less effective, uh, you know, because I am more or less single-minded, but they emerge rather out of the depth of intimacy that we share, right? People that my family members are going to care for me or my concerns in the measure that they care for me as a person with all of my foibles and all my distractions and all my myriad concerns. And uh, and if they lack that, it doesn't matter how single-minded I am. I'm not going to get what I want, right? Um, you know, the guy who, the stranger who approaches me on the street and is single-minded in his determination to, you know, get me to vote for his candidate or buy his snake oil product, is his sincerity and single-mindedness are of no account to me, right? right. Uh, it's the lack of relationship that really becomes the compelling issue here. Yeah. Um, so that's one way that prayer works. It works <coughs> relationally, and it's not dependent on the kind of criteria that you're articulating. The other way that prayer works is it works on my own psychology, right? That the more I pray, 
the Lord's Prayer. The more I pray in accord with the will of God, the more I pray to be conformed to his will, then I myself am the one that's being changed. Uh, rather than trying to get God to change my circumstances, I'm trying to change me to match my circumstances, to, to accept the, the hand that the Lord has dealt me, the, the adventure that he's sent me, um, and to conform myself to his will. Prayer works that way, too. And, and single-mindedness can be of some value there, right? But, um, uh, but honest examination of conscience, which can be variegated, may be better, right? The, you know, op- being open to correction, being open to discovering things about my motives, um, you know, maybe I have a single-minded intention that, uh, you know, what really needs to happen in this circumstance is, uh, you know, let's say I have a—I'm just making this up. This is not a real situation. Let's say I have a, a son who is, um, you know, who's—there's uh, a young lady in his life, or maybe a daughter, there's a young man in her life, and I think, man, that'd be the perfect spouse. And I'm, I'm just going to really go to town and pray my head off that God would uh, get this, these two together, because if that happens, man, it'll just be— heaven on earth and everybody's expectations will be met and we'll all be happy god just let my will be done god get this these young people together um single-mindedness again may not only may it not move god but it might be moving me in the wrong way right because if i'm single-minded about the wrong intention then i may end up making myself obnoxious to my family and to the young people involved better is the prayer the single-minded prayer lord be it done to me according to thy word Yes, and uh, you know, prayer can work on us, work on our affections. As we can, we can use imagination, we can use discourse, we can use kind of wordless prayer. Anything that we do in prayer, as long as it tends to faith, hope, and charity, we're doing it right. Very good. Thanks so much for your call on the EWTN listener comment line. These calls are uh, calls that came in when we were not doing one of our programs, so they were probably uh, coming in during the overnight hours or on the weekends. Here's another call from the EWTN listener comment line. Hello, I'm calling from New York. My name is Vicki. Is it right to believe that, that not everything should be in the Bible? This is so obvious, right? But they are insisting that the Catholic practices should be in the Bible. Really, please, uh, advice. Yeah, okay, so you've got friends that are objecting to Catholic practice on the grounds that Catholic practice is not in the Bible. I All believe right. so, yeah. So here's, here's what I would do with that. Okay, so there's a, there's a principle they're, they're holding to here. The principle is don't believe or think or do anything that's not in the Bible. Okay? Is that principle in the Bible? The answer to that question is no. No. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't say that the Bible itself is the rule of faith. Rule of faith means how do we regulate our faith life, right? The Bible doesn't declare itself to be the rule of faith. It declares itself to be useful. Yes. It declares itself to be inspired, mm-hmm. but not the rule of faith. Does the Bible say something about the rule of faith? It does. It says that the disciples authorized by Jesus are to go forth into the world and teach all of his oral tradition. Matthew 28 says this, and that God will accompany them. It makes the teaching of the church the rule of faith, not the contents of the Bible. In fact, the only way we have a Bible, the only reason we have a list of books that we call Scripture, are that the Catholic Church has defined and promulgated this list. So you need Catholic tradition to even get the Bible off the ground. Yeah. 
Appreciate that. Thanks so much uh, for your uh, phone call to our EWTN listener comment line. Call to communion here on EWTN. Glad that you're with us uh, for this Labor Day program. Don't forget, EWTN brings you the Holy Rosary twice each day here on the radio, and we've been doing it for over 25 years. Tune in every morning, 5.30 a.m. Eastern, for Mother Angelica as she recites the rosary, and every evening at 9.30 p.m. for Father Benedict Rochelle with some uh, beautiful music there in the background from Simonetta, both only on EWTN Radio. Here's an email that we received now from Ronald in Moreno Valley, California. Very thoughtful email here. Although the nature of hell is described as eternal, all other scriptures, Old and New Testament, that I've encountered suggest final death as the judgment for sinners. So, when did the church adopt eternal suffering as its understanding of the unrepentant sinner's destination? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, um, pretty early on, I mean, you find descriptions of, of, uh, of damnation in second century church teaching, um, and, uh, you know, it gets developed dogmatically over time. And hell was a, has always been a controversial topic, and there have been different views on it over the centuries. And and uh, you know, and there were heresies that were anathematized into the you know third and fourth century about the nature of hell. Um, but uh, but at least the concept of eternal punishment, even if it wasn't formulated as a dogma, was there very early on. Very good. And here's another uh, call that we received from our e- <coughs> excuse me our EWTN listener comment line. Hi, my name is Anna. I'm from Sioux City. I was just wondering why it is that in our um, when we're married. Um, it is not acceptable to use um, contraceptive or um, or condom when you're married through the church. What's the Catholic standing on that, and why is it that they want us to choose uh, abstinence during the fertile times? Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Uh, just to clarify, the church does not demand that you choose abstinence during fertile times of fertility. Uh, Catholics are not required to practice natural family planning. However, natural family planning is advisable if you wish to limit your family size. Right. So if you want to limit the number of children you have, that's the appropriate means to do it. But if you're open to 15 kids, then, you know, you don't have to practice an FP. That's just your choice, right? Um, in terms of why that is the case, so the, the, the nature of the marital act, just biologically, obviously, is ordered to the procreation of children. And, uh, and so the, the intent that a person brings to the act uh, is really radically changes the character of the act. And so if a marital couple is involved in the kind of uh, coupling that is naturally fulfilled in the bearing of children and is intrinsically open to life, um, th- the nature of the coupling changes, right? And, I mean, this is really easy to see. Let me give an example with another kind of sexual sin where I think it's very, very simple to see the difference. Um Oftentimes I'll get a call on the show and people say, well, you know, there's, there's really no difference between the kind of sexual union that I have when I'm cohabitating with my girlfriend and the kind that I have with my wife. I mean, materially, it's the same act. What's the difference? And materially, there is no difference. It's not in the materiality of the act. It's in the intent. And there's all the difference in the world. And this is easy to see, I think, between, yes, I'd be happy to sleep with you for now, but I make no commitments. Like maybe not next week. Maybe not next 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 week. You're out of here like last week's la- dirty laundry, hmm. you know. But this week I'm fine. There's all the difference in the world between that and yeah, I'd like to be intimate with you, 
and I pledge my whole life to you, and I will die before I leave you, and I will share all my worldly goods with you, and I'll be with you through sickness and health, rich and poor, better or worse, no matter what comes. Um, you have my word that uh, that we will, I will always be there to take care of you and love you and give myself to you. The material act hasn't changed at all, but the moral context is entirely different, sure. right? And the same kind of difference pertains with with human sexuality, like within marriage. Like, there's all the difference in the world between, you know, I'd like to share pleasure with you, but I'm not open to any kind of consequences. Um, versus, um, you know, the, this coupling exists so that we can be open to life, and we want to have a kind of marital friendship grounded in virtue and self-restraint that's the ideal environment f- in which kids can be raised. Mm-hmm. And I, I really don't want to objectify you or your body or me or my body, right? I, I want to put my body and your body at the service of something greater, namely this institution called a family, which is a sacrament of the church, an ecclesial state, there for the salvation of the world and for those involved in it. Thank you so much for your call. Call to communion on this Labor Day edition of our program. Here's an email that we received from Angela. Doesn't the Catholic Church hold that Mary gave birth to Jesus without any pain because she was free from original sin? Well, if that's the case, then why does Revelation 12 say that the woman clothed with the sun uh, with 12 stars around her head who was with child cried out because that child uh, childbirth was painful? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. I've gotten this one before. So the woman in Revelation chapter 12 is clearly Mary and clearly the church. Mm. And that's the way biblical archetypes work. Yeah, in the same way, look at Isaiah 53, um, the servant, or all the servant songs of Isaiah, which in context clearly refer to Israel. They refer to a collective. Okay. And they refer to Jesus. All biblical archetypes work this way. You'll take, you'll take one item— it, is, it has its own integrity as that item, but it also stands in as a type that points to some other reality. And so the Church has always seen a very close identity between the person of Mary and the institution of Mother Church herself. Mm. And so when we, when we use this figurative imagery of the woman who gives birth to the child with a rod of iron, who we also learn is the mother of all those who believe in Jesus. The text goes on to say that about her. We can see an identification both with the historical Mary mm-hmm. and with our mother, the Church, that gives birth to all of us. Mm, okay. and, and that parturition is, of course, painful. Right? Now, Mary's physical parturition was not painful, but her motherhood was. I mean, she is Our Lady of Sorrows. Yes. Well, there you go. Angela, thanks so much uh, for your email. Let's uh, take another call from our EWTN listener comment line. I have a question regarding possible uh, annulment from my wife. Uh, we were uh, married back in 1985. We never had any children, and a marrying marriage has not gone well in recent years as it is. And I'm thinking a lot about separating possibly annulment divorce, and uh, also that uh, I could still, even at my age of 67, have a chance to marry somebody else and finally have children, and I wonder if that's possible. Thank you very much. I'm a very um, uh, uh, big fan of the show. Watch it or listen to it every day. Thank you very much. I I appreciate the question. Um, it is possible. I can, of course, not guarantee an outcome, right? Um, just because a marriage has turned sour or is unpleasant is not in itself grounds for annulment. Um 
there can be all kinds of grounds for an annulment. Usually, um, if the people who entered into the marriage were not in a state where they were competent to do that at the time, mm-hmm. that's the normal grounds for granting an annulment. Um, and so th- it, they don't really look as much at what's your marriage like now. The marriage tribunal is going to look like what was your state of life when you got married in the first place. And that's a fact-finding enterprise. So they have to actually go do the investigation, do some interviews, and, mm-hmm. and make that determination. There can be other grounds for an annulment as well, but that, that that's the most common. So I have no idea what the marriage tribunal would find in your case. Um, you know, most tribunals will not begin to process an annulment until there's already a civil divorce. I am not advocating that you divorce your wife. I'm just telling you what the order of operations generally is. Okay. Um, but uh, by all means, I would make an appointment with your priest um, and possibly with a member of the church's tribunal mm-hmm. and uh, and have this conversation. And you can give them more details than you're capable of giving me and see what they say. You know, yeah, we think you've got a case or no, we don't think you have a case. And that will inform your decision, I'm sure. Thanks so much for your call. I think we have time for one more call from the EWTN listener comment line. Hello, this is Gil from Pittsburgh. Question is, Dr. David Anders, have you ever in your career had a uh, non-belief or a faith crisis? Oh, yeah, like what day haven't I? <laughs> yeah, to be sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I personally, I find the Catholic faith rewarding and worth it, but a tremendous challenge. And, you know, in my experience, by and large, uh, people who are involved professionally today in the work of apologetics um, are not saints, right? Uh, And, I mean, there are exceptions, of course, and I'm not one of the exceptions. People often end up in this line of work because they're insecure, right? And, and, uh, like, I'm not satisfied with my grasp of the faith or my attempts to present it to myself as rational. And so, you know, some people can live the faith generously without a doubt or a question. Then there are some of us blockheads who have to go get a PhD in theology and bang our heads into, you know, a brick wall for 15 years. Mm. And then we come out the other end of that with just many more deep questions. Great. Right? You know, and and it's a never-ending process of exploration and refinement and clarification and qualification, and it, it goes on and on and on and on, right? And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm constantly engaged in the work of trying to reason about my faith, understand my faith, wrestle with problems and difficulties, uh, sometimes existential crises of, mm-hmm. of great moment. I've shared on this show before. I'm not giving anything away here. I mean, I've had my, my bouts of depression and anxiety and those various other neurotic concerns that we all deal with, and sometimes those take the shape of religious or theological problems, and I need spiritual counsel and spiritual direction and confession and spiritual friendship, and I have to sort of be able to lay it on the line for other people and uh, say, hey, I don't know what to do about this, and I'm at the end of my rope. I mean, I'm a human being like everybody else is, and like my being here in this job doesn't imply that for a second that I feel like I have it all together. Really quite the contrary. Like I said, I I think I'm I'm here because I'm the sort of person— who is has per- perpetually unsatisfied with answers that I've been given, 
And so I've gone exploring new answers, and very often that process just leads to a new set of questions. Sure. Appreciate that. Thanks so much uh, for your phone call. We're going to close with this one from Stephen, who says, Revelation 13.8 seems to say, seems to say, that those who will be saved were already determined beforehand from the foundation of the world. Please comment. Um, yeah, I appreciate the question. So God certainly has foreknowledge of all those whom will be saved. He certainly does. Absolutely. That's Catholic teaching. That's biblical teaching. God foreknows everyone who will be saved. Now, you know, how does that divine foreknowledge square with human freedom? How does it square with divine providence? That's a controversial question. Different answers have been given in the history of the Christian tradition. Um, the Catholic faith lays down some parameters. It, humans really have free will. Uh, grace cannot be earned. Those are two parameters right there. God offers sufficient grace to everyone to be saved. Um, but those who cooperate with grace and are eventually saved cannot credit their own righteousness for that cooperation. That creates some paradoxes. What I've done is I've taken one paradox. I just was talking about this a minute ago, right? Yeah, yeah. I took one paradox. I added some qualifications, and now I've got like three paradoxes, right? Um, and Catholic theologians work through those in different ways. But yes, God foreknows the, the end from the beginning, including who's going to be saved and who's not. Uh, if we persevere to the end, it's not due to our righteousness, but due to God's grace. Our cooperation is necessary. It's possible to resist divine grace, um, but our cooperation is not credited to us, but to God's uh, superintendence. So, and these are things uh, that the church has taken a long time, in some cases uh, centuries, centuries, to to work all this out. There is a caution in the Council of Trent when the Council of Trent discusses the mystery of predestination, and it says basically, um, leave this one to the professionals, not for the faint of heart. Don't preach on it too much. Yeah, or as we say in our house, uh, Catholicism ain't for wimps. Catholicism ain't for wimps, yeah. You just, you know, you, you got to be strong. Trust the church. The church has had uh, millennia to work all these things out, and uh, that's why I'm glad I'm, I'm a Catholic, and I know that you are the same Absolutely. way. Absolutely. Appreciate that, and we appreciate everybody uh, tuning in on this special Labor Day edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. Dr. David Anders, thank you, sir. Thank you, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday, normally a live show for you at 2 p.m. Eastern with an encore at 11 p.m. Eastern, and that is uh, 8 p.m. on the West Coast. You can always check out the podcast. We uh, post that just as quick as we can. Uh, Charles will have that posted for you at EWTN radio, uh, EWTN.com slash radio. That's it. EWTN radio slash com. Did it again. EWTN.com slash radio. There you go. And then look for the word podcast, and that'll guide you to where we are. On behalf of our producer, Charles Beery, I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Thanks so much. We'll see you for another live episode of a Call to Communion at this same time tomorrow. Have a great day. Happy Labor Day, and God bless.